1974, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote an essay, essay entitled Live Not by Lies. Solzhenitsyn, I'll probably butcher that a few times, uh, Russian novelist, historian, philosopher, and outspoken critic of Soviet-era communism. Among his many accomplishments, he helped to raise global awareness of the Soviet gulags, the forced labor camps. Um, And the gulags uh, were a place that he visited. He was actually thrown into one after simply writing a, a letter critical of Joseph Stalin. Well, when Live Not By Lies was published in 1974, it was, you know, shared among uh, Russian intellectual circles, and uh, the KGB broke into his apartment, arrested him. Thankfully, instead of sending him back to the gulags, they exiled him to West Germany. I don't know if you've ever read it before, but I highly recommend. Short essay, really good essay to read. Violence does not lay its paw on every shoulder every day. Rather, it demands from us only this, obedience to lies and daily participation in lies. And this required submissiveness is the crux of the matter. The simplest and most accessible key to our liberation is personal non-participation in lies. Though lies, this is the key, killer line. Though lies may conceal everything, though lies may control everything, we should be obstinate about this one small point. Let them be in control, but without any help from us. Yes, as you read it, you find that it is applicable to all sorts of areas in life. I couldn't help but hear echoes of Solzhenitsyn in today's passage in Acts chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Last week we read in chapter 3 the story of Peter and John healing, a, a paralyzed man, a beggar who daily sat outside the beautiful gate outside of the temple. The crowd, understandably, was provoked by this. They, they were amazed by it. Peter and John began to speak to the crowd, and we pick up the story in 4.1. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought, up, brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved." 
when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the the man who had been healed standing there with them, uh, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish council, ruling council, and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they, were, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And this is quoting here Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the kingdoms, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We say, Father, with the psalmist, please never take your word of truth from our mouths, for we have treasured it in our hearts. But teach us, Holy Father, to live by the truth the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Oops. All right, I'm going to go with a three-point sermon this morning. Uh, We're going to consider these three things, the Psalms, which are quoted in the passage, the name that is mentioned in the passage, and the courage that is given in the passage. In verses 24 through 31, The apostles quote in their prayer meeting Psalm 2, and they interpret Psalm 2 very interestingly. The kings of the earth they speak of, and the rulers who gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, they interpret to refer to Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the the Gentiles, the Romans, and the people of Israel. Now, why is that significant? Psalm 2, we think, was originally a coronation psalm. 
It was uh, probably used in, in a liturgy of a coronation ceremony, the, the, the crowning of a king. There, have been the, there would be the pomp and circumstances. Everyone processes into the meeting place. And when the time comes for the king of Israel to be crowned, at the very moment when they would place the crown upon the head of David, for instance, most likely one of the priests would have read aloud Psalm 2, particularly Psalm 2, verse 7, where it says, Today you are my son. Today I have become your father. And the crown is placed on his head. The, the idea being that the new, the new king is enthroned as the son, a son of God. And there are trumpets sounding. There's cheers going up from the crowd. Everyone is rejoicing at the, the new coronation of the king. Not everyone, though. The psalm also describes how the hostile nations that surrounded Israel responded to this new coronation. According to the psalm, the nations are furious. They're raging against the appointment of this new king. In fact, they convene a top-secret meeting of all of the leaders, and they draw plans for how to overthrow him. Okay, That's that's the context, the original context of Psalm 2. Isn't it interesting how Peter and John appropriate Psalm 2? Because what are they really saying here? They are saying that Psalm 2 is primarily about Good Friday. It's primarily about Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane, his trial before the high priest in the Sanhedrin, his being beaten by the, the Roman guard, the soldiers, his appearing before Herod and Pontius Pilate, they say that Good Friday is the nations raging, the nations plotting to overthrow God's anointed king. Now, I, I get excited every time I find a new nugget in scripture that I you know, like have never seen before. I'll tell you, I think that I've carried in my mind a wrong view of Pontius Pilate, <laughs> of all things, uh, down through the years. Um, I think I've thought of him this way, that he really didn't want to crucify Jesus. Uh, sure, the chief priests and the, the, the teachers of the law, I mean, those guys, they were scumbags. They, they were evil. Um, they were guilty. So was Herod. So were the soldiers. So were the people. But Pontius Pilate, yes, he was culpable. Yes, he was guilty. But in some sense, he, he, he didn't really want to do it. Uh, I've kind of like had some secret sympathy in my heart for Pontius Pilate as though he was some weak, vacillating man who just gives in to the peer pressure of the crowd and he washes his hand in the bowl and says, "Uh, Jesus' blood is not on on my hands. What I've come to see is that is a complete misinterpretation of the story. Because in Psalm 2, it tells us, Psalm 2 tells us what Pontius Pilate what all of their, their motives were. Verse 27, if you'll look back in the passage, it says that indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Pontius Pilate was a conspirator. He's a Psalm 2 ruler who is plotting evil in the overthrow of God's, of God's son, the king. And so I don't know, I guess I've never, I've never seen it that way before. Um, how do you? So when we come, here's what I, I want you to remember. When we come 
to the Good Friday readings this year and we read this, that part of the narrative, um, and you may be tempted to see a weak man wilting under the pressure of the crowds. Know this, absolutely know this, that that is a ruse. It's a ruse. There's one other fascinating note in my mind on Psalm 2. I want you to imagine that somehow we were able to place a microphone in heaven. Uh, there's a microphone in heaven right now, and we're able to hear the ongoings of uh, what has happened in the heavenly throne room right, right now. What do you think it sounds like? What do you imagine the heavenly throne, throne room sounds like? Well, probably we imagine uh, like angel choirs and loud singing and proclamations and the saints singing around the throne of God with, with great joy. Um, this is probably not a question you've asked before, but what do you think it sounded like on Good Friday? As Jesus was being arrested, as he was being beaten, as he was going through a sham trial, as the nails were being, uh, you're piercing his hands and his feet, what do you think heaven sounded like on Good Friday? And my, I mean, granted, it's just speculation, but I imagine heaven sounding absolutely silent. It's like the angels are just in dumbfounded silence and disbelief at what they are witnessing. But friends, that's not what Psalm 2 suggests. If there was a microphone in heaven, Psalm 2 says, the sound that we would hear on Good Friday, anybody know what it is? It's laughter. It says God laughs. But it's not the laughter of joy, it is the la- he laughs with contempt. God laughs with contempt at the rebellion of the kings of the earth. He laughs with derision as the nations plot evil against the sun. He laughs because of, look at verse 28. He laughs because it says, everything they were doing to Jesus, everything they did was, quote, what your power and will had decided before should happen. God laughs because his enemies are doing his bidding. Yes, in crucifying the son, they are unwittingly destroying themselves and meeting their own demise. And it's in that way that God laughs at it all. Again, not something that I really had thought of until um, this week. The second psalm, which is quoted in verse 11, it's Psalm 118, a very commonly quoted psalm in the New Testament. The stone you builders rejected uh, has become the cornerstone. We've talked about this before. What is a cornerstone? Well, the cornerstone was simply the most important uh, piece of rock in whatever construction project, large construction project that you were undertaking. The cornerstone stood at the uh, corner (laughs) of the building and you would build off of it. And therefore the cornerstone had to be perfectly proportional, right angle, plumb. Otherwise the dimensions of the temple, let's say that you're constructing, would be off proportionally. And so in ancient stone masonry, a mason would go to the stone quarry and he would carefully scrutinize all the rocks that were available to him. And he'd select the rock that would be the the foundation of the temple and he would then chisel it to perfection. Clearly, John and Peter say that Jesus is the stone. The God, he, the architect of the temple, 
uh, had selected Jesus as the stone and had testified that Jesus was the stone, had testified through many signs and wonders. But the rulers of the world tossed the stone away and threw it onto the scrap heap as just a piece of worthless rubbish. John and Peter say something interesting. He says, they say, the stone you builders rejected. If you go back to Psalm 118, there is no you in the passage. So what is it that they're doing? What are they saying? They're saying that Psalm 118 as a prophecy has been fulfilled. And you are the guys who fulfilled it. You are the guys who are not only on the wrong side of history, you are the guys who are the enemies of God's Messiah. Now that is a, that's a speech that's not going to win you, win you many friends. <laughs> um, and yet that is the speech in boldness that they deliver to the powers that be. And the beauty of the gospel is that on the third day, what, on the third day, what happened? God raised the stone to life and made him the cornerstone of the new temple, um, the new temple that he's constructing in the church. So those are the Psalms. Let's move on to the name. It's probably hard for us to imagine how intimidating it would have been to stand before the Jewish Sanhedrin, you know, the Supreme Court of their day. How intimidating it would have been in particular to Peter. I mean, Peter, just a few weeks earlier, couldn't stand before a servant girl. Just a few weeks earlier, Peter when asked if he's one of Jesus' disciples, he can't even stand up. He says, I don't even know the man. And yet here, Peter is standing up against the, the ruling authorities of the, of the day. And look with me again, this time at verse 7. The really sinister part of, of the question that the authorities ask in verse 7 is they say, what power or name did you use to do this? That is, to do this miracle. That sounds very much like what the Pharisees said to Jesus when he worked miracles, doesn't it? That his miracles were some sort of black magic. That he was in league with the devil. That he was, you know, he was serving the name of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That he was able to work his miraculous healings and wonders through, through the devilish powers. That's what they're suggesting. And here's what Peter could have said in response to that. Uh, Peter had a very easy get out of jail free card if he would have simply said, if he would have stood up and said, brothers and fathers, in this we can agree that there is no salvation except in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, There is only one name that a man can be saved, and that is by the name of Yahweh. He could have said that. And if he had said that, it would have been perfectly biblical. (laughs) It would have, uh, you couldn't disagree with it. They probably would have let him go. But if he had said that, he would have been living by a lie. I just, I want you to to, uh, somehow feel the power of what they say right here. There is only one name under heaven by which a person can be saved. And that name is Jesus. There is only one name under heaven by which anybody can be saved. That name is Jesus. 
Friends, that's the testimony of the apostles. That is not, that's not the testament, that's not the statement of some like fundy Bible church out in the hills saying, that's the testimony of the apostles. There's only one name that you can be saved through. The name of Jesus. Even more, they say it's the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, in their day, there were tons of associations uh, with Nazareth, Nazareth as a place of obscurity, a place of of shame. It was a place despised by the elites of the society. But here, the place of Nazareth is owned very proudly as a title on the lips of the apostles. They say the only name you can be saved is in Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth. And you say, well, why is it important that they mention Nazareth? We just got to get Jesus' uh, geography right. It's kind of interesting. You go to the Gospel of Matthew and you find that Matthew, uh, he locates Nazareth. He says Jesus was born in Nazareth because it is a fulfillment of prophecy. And then you go back to the Old Testament. You're like, well, where does it say in the Old Testament? I'm sorry, not born in Nazareth, lived in Nazareth. Uh, fulfillment of prophecy. Where in the Old Testament does it say that Jesus was supposed to live in Nazareth? You really can't find a verse. And you're like, well, why, what is going on here? Well, what we think is most likely happening is Nazareth is a pun on the Hebrew word nazir. And nazir means branch. Now we understand how it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Because out of the stump of Jesse, a nazir will come. A branch will come uh, that will grow. And he will be, he will be the, the, um, you know, the, the, the Messiah, the king. And so what we might on one hand say nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Uh, now Jesus is raised from the dead and he has proven to be the branch that has sprung, the Nazir uh, that has sprung up from the dead and is now bearing much fruit. I think that's the reason um, they, they say Jesus of Nazareth. The fact that salvation can only be found in the name of Jesus by faith in Jesus I hope you realize that is the basis for all of the church's evangelistic witness in the world. That is the reason that we think it's so important to take the gospel to to our city, to our state, to our country, to the rest of the world. It is it is precisely because you can't be saved in any other way. Uh, that's the the logic of the apostle Paul in Romans chapter ten verses thirteen through fifteen. He says. Do you recall those words? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that is the name of Jesus, will be saved. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. But, but how then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard of? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they, how can they preach unless someone has been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of the gospel. And, um, and that's what has, uh, frankly, inspired our, our, our Christian missionary witness. Now that was, those are very unpalatable words for, for today. They're not new um, in terms of their unpalatability. If you go back to even the 14th century in the church, um, go back to Dante's Divine Comedy, there's a line in the Divine Comedy that basically suggests that out in the world somewhere is a person who's never heard of Jesus before, but is living righteously and will be saved. He won't be judged by God. So Dante writes, 
uh, a man is born on Indus, Indus banks, the, the Indus River, some, I think, goes right through Pakistan. A man is born, but there is none who speaks of Christ, nor doth read, uh, nor, nor who doth read or write. And all this man's inclinations and his acts, as far as human reason sees, are good. And he offendeth not in word or deed, but unbaptized he dies, and void of faith. And Dante asks, where is the justice that condemns this man? The problem with Dante is the, the Bible's problem that such a man doesn't exist. That there isn't a righteous man living in the, the, the jungles of the Amazon who's never heard of Jesus because no one is righteous. No, not one. All of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. All of our inclinations, apart from the grace of, of God, are, are corrupt. Um, and so that's why Christians have said we must take the message of the gospel to the world. We, were, we are willing to risk our lives in order to bring the good news. They felt, they felt in their hearts an inescapable obligation to make it so that people would not only hear the gospel in their native tongues, but would hear the gospel articulated in as persuasive a way as was humanly possible. And that is why they're willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. That is why you can go to graveyards in Africa today and you see them littered with Christian missionaries. They knew they were going to die of fever. They knew they were going to die of fever when, I, when they got on the boats. But they did it for this very reason. That there is no other name that a man can be saved. Thirdly and finally, let's talk about the courage Peter and John were not Cambridge guys. They were not Harvard guys. They were not Cambridgeites, as the uh, sermon title says. They were not formally trained in the Torah. They were not blue bloods. They didn't come from the elite scribal or priestly classes. Um, But what they lacked in pedigree, they certainly made up for in courage. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Peter and John were uh, country rubes. I mean, if you read the, the letters and the, the books that they wrote, wrote you know, later for the, in the New Testament, it's clear that these guys were actually very intelligent men. Very intelligent men. But they, weren't, but they didn't come from the elite class. And what they, what they lacked in pedigree, they made up for in courage. Look at verse 18. They're called again uh, into the Sanhedrin's presence. And it says, they commanded them... Uh, John, John and Peter, they commanded John and Peter not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And if you do, the threat is, if you do, we're going to get, we're going to even with you. What emerges here and through the rest of the book of Acts is just a simple theme. The theme is constant opposition, opposition against the disciples of Jesus Christ. What I want to suggest to you, friends, is that if you choose to not live by lives, then just like Peter and John, you will pay a price for that. What could be more offensive in today's climate than to maintain that salvation is found in, in nobody else than Jesus? Uh, what could be more unpalatable? I mean, there are many Christian teachings, if we're being honest, that are unpa- unpalatable to people. And if we hold to those, more than that, if we speak of those, e- and even if we speak of those things as we ought in the most winsome like humble, gracious way. If, if, you, if you talk about those kinds of things, then you will face trouble. You know, a servant is not greater than his master. Our, our Lord and his apostles were opposed 
And even if you say it ever so kindly, you will be too. I think there are several things that can, that can really give us courage. They can give us backbone. And they are these. Consider this. The opposition that we face in this world, either being, it being the dismissive indifference of others, or the positive scorn of enemies, or even the threat of loss of job or livelihood, all of those things are utterly in God's hands. The people we are inclined to fear in this world, they have no power to do us any real harm. No one can hurt us without the will of our Father in heaven. We can't even, a hair from our head cannot even fall off without the will of our Father in heaven. And if he does choose for us to suffer loss or peril or even sword, as Paul elsewhere talks about, we know that nothing will ever separate us from this love that is so high, so deep, uh, how long, um, how wide, nothing will separate us from that love and if we suffer loss, we can be sure that in some way, it will be making an important contribution to God's kingdom. Simply put, no one will be able to harm us unless it's God's will. The other thing that I think gives us tremendous courage is to know that if, if people oppose us for being Christians, not not opposing us for being obnoxious. <laughs> like, we shouldn't be obnoxious. But if we're opposed because we hold to the teachings of Jesus Christ, if people even hate us, as Jesus predicted would happen, it's really not us that they hate. It is him. I think it's ennobling to realize that whatever opposition we face in this world, it's not personal. <laughs> it's really not about me. It's really about them and their relationship to God and, and their rebellion against God. It's really their fight against God. And so I don't have to take it personally. One of the things I love about the prayer that they, they offer in verse 29, if you'll notice that in the prayer, when they go back and have their prayer meeting, there is not a hint of personal vindictiveness in this prayer. They do not go back and say, oh, Lord, cause our enemies to die horribly, Lord, um, stop their persecution and, and, melt, and make them melt like snails with salt on their backs. You know, They just say simply this, Lord, look at the threats that they have offered against us and make us continue to speak boldly and powerfully in your name. Just give us strength to continue doing what we are doing. Continue to work powerfully through us. And I'd say, I'd say the church... The church has to learn in every generation like how to pray that way. Um, how, what it means to pray with confidence like that. Like, Lord, this is in your hands. Lord, this is not personal. Lord, just keep, the one thing I ask is that you would continue to work through my speech and through my deeds. I think the third thing that steals us with encouragement, there's so many promises in the Bible that when the time comes and we have to give an answer, the Holy Spirit will give us the words we need to speak. Um, like you, you don't have to rehearse it over and over again in your head. You, you don't have to be a Cambridgeite or a, a Harvard guy and know your apologetics backwards and, and forwards. Like the Holy Spirit will tell you, he'll show you what you need to say in that time. There's a great story told by the Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's 
He tells a story of a Scottish girl during the time of the Scottish Reformation, 16th century. Uh, The Scots are breaking away from the Church of England, which at that time was Roman Catholic. They're breaking away from the King of England and from the Roman papacy. And this Scottish girl, it's a Sunday afternoon. She's headed out to a secret communion service. You know, a communion service, a Protestant communion service was absolutely forbidden. If you get caught doing that, you're either going to be thrown into jail or you may be killed. So she turns the corner uh, and lo and behold, there are soldiers. She's face to face with them. She's trapped. And she's like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? I don't want to lie. She prays to the Holy Spirit. And it's like the Holy Spirit gives her these words. Halt, who are you? What are you doing there? She says, my elder brother has died, and we're, we are going to read his will this afternoon. And he has done something for me, and has left something for me, and I want to go and uh, see what that is. <laughs> and they're like, on your way. <laughs> and she gets through it. But it's, I mean, there's so many stories of that in church history, and there are so many stories of that in the book of Acts, where The Holy Spirit gives you the words. And when we pray to God for strength and courage to know what to say, the Lord Lord is a fortress that we run into. The Lord is near to us. um, And and the Lord is ready to put his words in our mouths. Let me conclude with this. We talked about the Psalms, the name, the uh, courage that is given. There was an article written a couple months ago in the Gospel Coalition by uh, the RUF campus minister, college minister at Northwestern University. The article was about Generation Z and the fearfulness of, of uh, Generation Z. You say, Generation Z, what's that age category? Mid to late 1990s through the early 2010s. I mean, have you ever talked with, with those kids? Uh, they are fearful. They're fearful about a job. Am I, where am I going to get a job? Will I even meet a spouse? Uh, will, will I be living in my parents' basement forever? We talked, we talked about um, how a kid, did I say last week, a kid who's born in 1997 right now uh, has a 40% chance of being married by the age of 40 in America? They're, of course they're frightened. And so he's writing this article about how we could speak to that generation to be strong and courageous in the Lord. And he, he has some interesting insights. He says, Uh, He says, I still worry that our branch of the church suffers from a blind spot on this issue. We sometimes are better at saying, you are weak, than we are are at saying, you can be strong. You know, many of us uh, in our circles are rightly cautious about moralizing Old Testament stories of courage, such as David and Goliath. But if calls to strength and courage persist, they continue in the New Testament, which they do, then Christ's fulfillment of those Old Testament stories um, is not the end of the story, but rather it's the basis for a deeper and more confident strength that is available to us. I mean, sure, we are the cowering people of Israel before the Goliath. And yes, Christ is our David. But after David's victory, the frightened soldiers of Israel rise up in courage to pursue the Philistines. Like, how much more for us on the other side of the story, he says. He said, I I know that we're also really wary about ripping strength verses out of context for inspirational purposes. This happens with football teams all the time, right? (laughs) You know, you be strong and courageous, and it's it's plastered up on the locker room wall, or 
These verses are a reason why so many Christian schools choose an eagle for their mascot, mounting up on wings and all. (laughs) We're also cautious because the prosperity gospel has co-opted all the statements of strength and um, has easily abused it and misapplied it. But he says, to this task we must set ourselves uh, to give a faithful account of those verses. If we are to care pastorally for Gen Z, I'd say any generation, but Gen Z and the world they reflect and influence, we must get over these hurdles and offer a better way, better than the fragile weakness of the college campus, better than the self-reliant American spirit of the high school locker room, and better than the prosperity gospel that makes false promises. It is Christ, here's the money, here it is Christ's gospel that offers strength powered by the Spirit and grounded in a true and abiding hope in Christ. You know, not in the things that are seen, of course, but in the already but not yet of things unseen and eternal. I know that was a mouthful, but if you followed it, you would definitely say amen. Amen to that. Amen to that Christ offers a strength that is powered by the Spirit and is grounded in the truth. Uh, You can be strong and courageous. You can choose to live not by lies because that is the power of the truth and the power of the name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen.